Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to this week's episode of Finance Explained. This week, I've got two major financial headlines for you. Last week was really all about the April employment situation that came out Friday morning, and two, the impact it then had on interest rates and the stock market. And given that, this week's deep dive is all about the current labor market. The April employment numbers left a lot of people scratching their heads, from businesses who are struggling to hire despite millions on unemployment to economists who expected four times as many jobs to be added by employers in April than were. How can it all be true at the same time? Many business leaders were quick to call for an end to expanded federal unemployment benefits. But is that the only impediment to the labor market recovery? We'll dive into what's up with the labor market, from variations among state policies, industry differences, the impact of childcare or lack thereof, and what role do federal unemployment benefits and the stimulus actually play? Now let's talk about the major financial headlines of the week. Up first, the April Employment Report. The first Friday of every month is always Jobs Friday when the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases its detailed employment situation report for the prior month. The March report was the strongest we had seen since August, and given the weekly jobless claims trends last month, many economists expected a million jobs to be added to payrolls in April. But Friday's release was more than disappointing. Total non-farm payroll employment only rose by 266,000 jobs for the month and the official unemployment rate actually increased to 6.1% as more people returned to the labor force. At first glance, the Bureau of Labor Statistics noted gains in leisure and hospitality sectors, as well as local government education, that were offset by employment declines in temporary help services, as well as couriers and messengers. As a reminder, the Employment Situation Report is based on two monthly surveys. A household survey measures labor force status and demographics like education level and race. The Establishment Survey is a survey of employers, and it measures actual employment and payroll numbers, as well as hours, earnings, and employment by industry. All of this data is totally separate from the weekly jobless claims data, which is reported by state labor agencies and based on the actual filings by people for continued claim and continued claims recipients for unemployment insurance. They should all be somewhat related, but I always get questions about why the numbers vary and this is how they are sourced and why they may be different. The headline unemployment rate also understates the real impact of this downturn as it doesn't account for the fact that there are fewer people in the labor force today than pre-pandemic. The labor force represents people employed and actively looking for work. And today, there are three and a half million fewer people in the labor force than there were a year ago. 
the U6 rate, which includes those who are both underemployed, working part-time but might want a full-time job, as well as those who have stopped looking for work in the last year, and that remains at double digits, 10.4% for April, 1.7 times the headline rate. The good news, the labor force has started to recover over the last three months, with 0.8 million people returning to it and either working or actively looking for work since January. It should be noted, however, that more women, 2 million, than men, 1.5 million, have left the labor force during the pandemic. Employment levels also vary significantly from the headline national numbers based on demographic factors, things like educational attainment, race, age, and gender. Unemployment rates are highest among younger men, black men, single mothers, and those without a high school education. Some of these demographic disparities have always existed and are just magnified in the current economic environment. You can check out a detailed breakdown of all the demographic details in my weekly market update linked in this week's show notes. It is most important to note, however, that these disparities are now part of the maximum employment goal the Fed looks at when setting monetary policy. The Fed remains committed to accommodative monetary policy, meaning low interest rates and continuing to increase the money supply, until the labor market achieves a broad and inclusive level of maximum employment, which given these labor market disparities, as well as the underwhelming job creation in April overall, means low interest rates are likely here to stay for a while, as the Fed has continued to indicate, but which many investors thought would come sooner, given broader recovery indicators. This week's podcast is also brought to you by the Family Finance Moms Book Club. If you want to increase your financial literacy even more, come read with us. It's super simple to join in. Every quarter, we read a book. To participate, all you have to do is read with us and join in the conversation by following me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom. Follow the hashtag FFM Book Club to catch all the related book club posts and join in the discussion in the comments. For Q2, we are actually reading a pair of contrasting books on economic theory. Big Debt Crises by Ray Dalio, which studies economic cycles of the last 1,500 years, and The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton, which poses a new economic theory, modern monetary theory, which says that deficit and the national debt may not really matter anymore. We'll compare and contrast them as when we discuss them in June. Now it's time for this week's deep dive into the labor market. Since April's job numbers brought more questions than answers, I reached out to ask my followers what questions they had about the current labor market. Here are a few. Are unemployment benefits really more than minimum wage? Somebody said her friend, a bar restaurant owner in California, can't hire people. Is this true elsewhere? How can we get back to work? Is it getting more people vaccinated? What does unemployment look like in states that are locked down versus not? Why is it still so hard to hire? I'm trying to hire 15 people and at $4 above minimum wage and I can find no one. 
I see help wanted signs and hear places aren't getting applicants. Why is there a disconnect? Is there any way to know the number of people looking for work that don't qualify for unemployment? I shared all these questions too. My local town's mom's Facebook group is full of women sharing that their family's businesses are hiring and every local business owner I've talked to, from restaurant owners to landscapers, the golf course to salons, they've all said they have positions available they can't fill, or that when they spend money to advertise, they get few to no qualified applicants. I even had one of you send me a photo from a trip to Menards, which is a regional chain similar to like a Lowe's or a Home Depot in the Midwest. They're trying to hire people at over $15 an hour and offering signing bonus incentives just to get people to apply. Businesses are actively trying to hire. They are offering higher wages than ever before to try to fill their positions and even offering signing bonuses for hourly positions. So why aren't more jobs being filled? After the Bureau of Labor Statistics April employment situation came out, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, as well as several restaurant and lodging industry associations, as well as Republican leaders both in Congress and state governors, called for an immediate end to the $300 a week federal jobless supplement. The disappointing jobs report makes it clear that paying people not to work is dampening what should be a stronger jobs market was a quote from Neil Bradley, who's the chief policy officer from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. But the White House and Treasury Department point the finger elsewhere. President Biden said, I know some employers are having trouble filling jobs, but what this report shows is that there's a much bigger problem. Today's report just underscores, in my view, how vital the actions we're taking are. Checks to people who are hurting, support for small businesses, for childcare and school reopening, Support to help families put food on the table. Our efforts are starting to work, but the climb is steep and we still have a long way to go. While Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen pointed to supply chain problems impacting many sectors as part of the problem too, and denied that unemployment benefits were any part of it. She said, I don't think the addition to unemployment compensation is really the factor that's making a difference. So with everyone pointing fingers in different directions and blaming anything but the area they control, I decided to dig into the data to see what it tells us about these various potential factors and their impact on the labor market. I looked at weekly unemployment claims data, people actually filing for unemployment insurance, and the average benefits from the Department of Labor, which is available at a state-by-state level. I looked at Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly unemployment data, also available not only at a national and state level, but even at a metro level and broken out by industry as well. I looked at various data on job postings and openings to see what is currently true and where the disconnect is in the current economic environment. And finally, I looked at census and academic surveys that have been going on during the recession about what people are actually saying about why they aren't working, how they are using their money, and what funds they need to make ends meet every month. Here's what I learned. It's not as simple as the fact that expanded unemployment benefits are paying people to stay home, as industry leaders might allege. As you might guess, the answer is more complicated than that. Unemployment benefits are a federal mandate, but administered by state programs. 
So exactly how much you get and for how long varies from state to state. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, the average weekly benefits paid out across all states was $318. Add in the current additional $300 per week in expanded federal benefits, and that makes the national average benefit $618. That's just over the $600 you would earn in weekly wages for a a 40-hour-a-week job under the proposed $15 minimum wage increase. It's also less than the combined state and federal benefit currently being paid in Texas of $705, but more than is being paid out in Florida at $533. But big picture, they're all significantly less than the average weekly earnings currently being paid to production and non-supervisory employees who earned $875 a week on average in April. Now, of course, that's an average, so it can be skewed by higher earning outliers, and it doesn't really tell us enough at the aggregate level. Are they more than current minimum wage? In most states, most likely yes, since most states aren't at $15 an hour. But we need to know more about the makeup of the labor market to best answer this question. To understand the current labor market, we need to better understand what the market actually looks like. What sectors employ the most people? What industries have been most impacted by the pandemic? And what do these different industries actually pay? By far, the most impacted segment of the labor market during the pandemic was leisure and hospitality. This includes things like arts, entertainment, and recreation. So think museums, concerts, and gyms. It includes hotels, restaurants, and bars. Basically, the epicenter of everything that was completely shut down during lockdowns and couldn't easily or immediately be substituted with online services. It also happens to be the third largest employment sector of the economy, representing 11% of all employees pre-pandemic, coming behind only healthcare and business services. Now let's take a look at the average earnings by each sector. While the average weekly earnings in April were $875 per week nationwide and across all sectors, the average earnings in the leisure and hospitality sector were less than half that, just $397 a week, the lowest earning sector of the labor market. If you allow for the 34.9 hours a week average per the April employment data, it amounts to about $11.30 an hour. The next lowest earning sector, retail, at $572 a week, or $16.39 an hour. Combined, the leisure and hospitality and retail sectors represented 21% of pre-pandemic employees, or one in five workers, and they both on average earn less than the current average national unemployment benefit. So is this impacting hiring in these sectors? We can definitively say employment is disproportionately impacted in these sectors. Total private employment, actual people on payrolls, is down just 5% now versus pre-pandemic levels. But restaurants are down 13%. Arts and entertainment and recreation are down nearly five times that at 24%. And hotels are down even further, down 27%. As an aside, 
the only sector with positive employment growth over the last 18 months, the federal government, which got a boost over the summer from census workers, but even absent that still remains 2% ahead of pre-pandemic levels. Before we address the hiring question, let's take a deeper look into who is actually collecting unemployment benefits. I'm going to give a breakdown on demographic factors first. The U.S. Census Bureau has been conducting a weekly household pulse survey throughout the last year to quickly and efficiently deploy data on how people's lives have been impacted by the pandemic. Included in this are questions and demographics about those receiving unemployment insurance benefits, which we don't readily get in the weekly jobless claims data that comes out every Thursday. According to the latest survey for the last two weeks of April, you are more likely to be collecting unemployment if you are age 25 to 54, which makes sense given that's prime working age, male versus female, with 4.4% of men versus 3.9% of women reporting receiving benefits, which also makes sense given men make up more of the labor force. You're more likely to be collecting benefits if you're a person of color, with 6.1% of Hispanic households collecting, 5.6% of Black households versus just 3.2% of white households. If you have only a high school degree, with 5.2% of those households collecting benefits versus 2.8% of college graduates. If you're divorced, separated, or never married. If you have children, and if you are below the median household income. And as I share weekly in the Monday market update, as of mid-April, 16.2 million people were collecting unemployment insurance benefits across all programs, with three quarters collecting benefits under expanded federal programs. What do I mean by that? Everyone currently collecting benefits is receiving the additional $300 in weekly federal benefits on top of any state ones. But there's two other ways the federal government has expanded unemployment benefits. First, there's pandemic unemployment assistance. This made unemployment insurance benefits available to people who would not have normally been eligible under regular state programs. Supporting employees like 1099 workers or members of the gig economy and the self-employed, as well as anyone who may have lost a job directly due to COVID, either due to having to care for a family member or because their place of business was shut down or quarantined. You can collect PUA benefits, if eligible, for up to 74 weeks through the beginning of September 2021. Second, there's pandemic emergency unemployment compensation. Many state benefits only run for 12 to 26 weeks, and we're now well over 52 weeks into this recession, and 43% of those unemployed have been out of work for over 27 weeks, so many people have exhausted their state benefit eligibility. That's where pandemic emergency unemployment compensation kicks in. As part of the American Rescue Plan Act passed in March, the federal government extended these benefits to up to 49 weeks until the program is scheduled to end in September of 2021. This means that in many states, you can collect up to 75 weeks of unemployment insurance benefits. If we look at weeks of benefits by state, 12 weeks is the lowest number for most state benefit programs, 
like Florida's. You add the 49 weeks of PEUC benefits, and you may have people start to use up their benefits starting in just the next few weeks. Most of the rest, they'll be fully covered until September. One other question I want to address here. How many people looking for work who don't actually qualify for unemployment? Now, this is at most an informed guess. But as of April 2021, the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly household survey data reports 161 million people in the civilian labor force, with 9.8 million unemployed, a 6.1% unemployment rate. However, if we expand that to account for the U6 rate of 10.4%, which includes those working part-time who want to work full-time, as well as those who might be discouraged given extended unemployment, That looks not too dissimilar from the 16.2 million collecting unemployment according to the Labor Department as of mid-April. So my educated guess, there aren't many not getting benefits currently who need them. But it's important to note that it's not just unemployment benefits that are helping households in the current economic environment. The Household Pulse Survey also asks households what sources of funding they are using to meet their spending needs over the last week. For this time period, 26% of all households surveyed said the stimulus benefits from March were still helping them meet their spending needs, while for households receiving unemployment insurance, 42% relied on stimulus for spending needs. Stimulus checks went out in March to more than 127 million Americans. They amounted to $1,400 for every income-eligible person, including dependents. For a family of four, you got a check for $4,800. If you are a one-income household earning the average weekly earnings of $875 a week, that's five and a half weeks worth of wages. So unemployment benefits are a hurdle in some sectors but so are stimulus benefits. And there's more to the story though than just money. I'll get to that momentarily, but first let's look at how all this varies state by state versus the nation as a whole. One of the questions you guys asked, does this look different in states without lockdowns? For geographic breakdowns, because I'm just a one woman show and can't dive into all 50 states, I focused on four. Texas, Florida, New York, and California. I chose these based on both your questions as well as what is widely widely viewed as their differences in not only political leadership, but also pandemic responses. In addition to those differences, the industry concentration between states can vary a lot too and also impact employment. Some states are far more economically driven by tourism, like California and Florida, while others, like Texas, are more dependent on things like oil and gas, which can also have impacts on the local local labor markets. Each week in the Monday Market Update, I share the weekly jobless claims data from the Department of Labor. It's based on numbers reported by each state's labor department, based on people who file for unemployment benefits. Comparing the four states mentioned, California's labor market by far is the most severely impacted. California is still reporting 2.3 times as many initial weekly jobless claims as Texas, despite being just 30% larger in terms of population. In terms of continuing claims, again, 
California has two and a half times as many people collecting benefits as Texas, and New York is similar to California's claim levels, despite having half the population. Now, if we normalize for population and look at the monthly Bureau of Labor Statistics data, what does that look like? Since the start of the pandemic, New York saw the most severe contraction in unemployment, down more than 20% from pre-pandemic levels at the height of the pandemic in April of 2020. California, however, saw declines not dissimilar from the nation as a whole, down just 15%. However, since then, California has been far slower to regain employment, as has New York after initial employment recoveries last summer. Why might that be? First, the impact of childcare. Parents can't work or look for work if they don't have reliable childcare or schools that are open. I've previously shared data with you all from USC's Understanding Coronavirus in America survey. According to their last survey conducted in February, California students were far more likely to not be in school in person than the rest of the U.S., with 85% of California students remote only and just 8% fully in person, versus less than half remote for the nation as a whole and 35% fully in person. More recent data from April from the Census Bureau's Household Pulse Survey gives similar childcare concerns. Two months later, just one-third of California students are in school in person even part-time, versus 59% for the U.S. as a whole. Both California and New York households reported a far higher percentage of children unable to attend childcare due to COVID over the last month, with 8.3% and 15.6% reporting it as an issue, versus 6.9% for the U.S. as a whole. In New York, more than 4% of households reported leaving their job in the last month due to childcare. Second, people are still concerned about COVID. However, new cases per 100,000, so normalizing for population, are highest in Florida, though still at far lower levels than this winter, where the fewest unemployment claims are being filed and the unemployment rate is lowest. While California has the lowest cases per 100,000 of the four states, but has the worst labor market situation currently. Also, if lack of vaccinations are the issue, at this point, over 40% of Americans are fully vaccinated. The rate is even higher in California and higher still in New York, which is the 11th most vaccinated state in the nation. Meanwhile, Florida and Texas fall well below the national average, and as mentioned before, their labor markets are in far better shape. The Household Pulse Survey also asked people straight up what reason they have for not working. Nationwide, actually only 7% of those not working say it's because they're concerned about COVID. One in five, however, are out of work due to COVID, due to their place of work being temporarily or permanently closed because of the pandemic. Another 11% nationwide do attribute not working to caring for children, while another 10% say they simply don't want to. Now, what does employment demand look like? So far, I've talked a lot about the supply side of the labor market, the people looking for work. Now let's talk about employers and job openings, 
the demand side of the labor market equation. The National Federation of Independent Business, a leading advocacy group for small and independent business owners, reports that 60% of their members are experiencing some level of staffing shortage. In their monthly small business survey for April, 44% of small businesses reported unfilled job openings, the highest level ever recorded in 50 years of surveys. Their small business members also increasingly report that finding qualified applicants for jobs is a problem. In April, 54% of business owners and 92% of those looking to hire reported few or no qualified applicants for jobs. Another data source, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, puts out a monthly JOLTS report. It stands for Job Openings and Labor Turnover and breaks down job openings by sector, with the latest data currently through the end of February. March data comes out tomorrow morning. Private sector job openings are currently up 8% versus pre-pandemic levels, according to this data source, with retail job openings up 11%, while leisure and hospitality job openings are still down 5% versus early 2020 levels. Indeed.com also publishes a job postings index available both nationally, by state, and even for some major metro areas. It gives near real-time data daily. Nationwide job postings versus February of 2020 are now up 24%, with more open states like Florida and Texas up even higher, while states like California and New York lag but still have higher postings now than pre-pandemic. However, like real estate, especially in the service sectors most impacted, the jobs market is still super local. And you can see how it even varies between major metros in a given state. In California, San Francisco's job postings are just now even with pre-pandemic levels, while San Diego's are up more than 30%. In Texas, Houston, which is more impacted by the oil and gas sector, sees slower job posting recovery than the state as a whole. Want to check out your local jobs market? You can look up your Metro or State's Indeed Job Postings Index on FRED at fred.stlouisfed.org. Just type in Indeed in your state or major city in the search bar. So what's the answer? The answer is it's all connected. Labor markets, especially for those sectors most impacted by the pandemic, are still local, and local policies matter, from executive orders on things like restaurant occupancy to whether certain businesses can even be open at all, schools being open in person, as well as childcare accessibility more broadly, definitely impacts parents' ability to work. And yes, for the sectors of the economy most impacted, like leisure and hospitality, restaurants and retail, unemployment benefits are absolutely a financial hurdle for businesses trying to hire. It's forcing hourly wages to compete with benefits that surpass average wages in those sectors. But more than that, for now, people are also making ends meet with stimulus checks from March. But that headwind should dissipate sooner than unemployment benefits which are in place in most cases until September. Some states are starting to take matters into their own hands. 
North Carolina has reinstated its work search requirements to remain eligible for unemployment benefits. Florida says it plans to reinstate requirements that recipients provide regular updates on job search efforts. Virginia is reinstating job interview requirements as well. The governors of Montana and South Carolina want to stop the $300 a week federal benefit before it ends in September, and Montana's governor instead wants to use the funds to pay residents a $1,200 return-to-work bonus if they return to work and complete four weeks. There is no doubt that there is now demand for labor and a labor shortage across most sectors and in most of the U.S., and that is only likely to get worse as many states continue to lift restrictions, vaccination rates increase, and the summer travel and tourism season gets underway. For more graphic representations of the data discussed tonight, as well as the history of the labor market and other major economic indicators, be sure to check out the link to this data in today's show notes. That's it for this week's Deep Dive. We've got another big week for economic data coming up, as well as the last of earnings season in the week ahead. On the economic front, we've got Wednesday, the April Consumer Price Index, the next monthly data point on inflation. Thursday, we have the usual weekly jobless claims, mortgage rates, and the Fed balance sheet data. And on Friday, we get an early indicator for consumer spending with April retail sales. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at Family Finance Mom as I share and chat about all these measures with you as they are released. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures.